0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly, and tonight I'm joined by Matt Riley of Matt Riley Fly Fishing. How's it going, Matt?
1: Pretty good, Marvin. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble. Before we get going tonight, I want to give a shout out to tonight's sponsor. It's the first fly shop in Bryson City, North Carolina, the Tuckaseegee Fly Shop. They also have an extra location for your convenience located in Silva, but you owe it to yourself to go check out the shop, talk to Dale, Bobby, meet the shop dogs and the other folks on the crew for all of your fly fishing needs in that part of the world. Well, Matt, I always start and ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory.
1: Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of tough for me. I've got a lot of my memories I'm, I'm kind of scared or just a product of pictures I've been shown because... Um, my dad, I'm really thankful that my dad started getting me out fishing and squirrel hunting and floating the river when I was two years old, three years old. Um, and some of my, ironically, some of my first memories really aren't even really of fish though. I know we were fishing. He used to take me to some stock trout ponds out in Nelson and Madison County. And one of the. I think it's my earliest memory is just remembering looking at some salamanders that we found under the rocks on the edges of some of those ponds and he was always I mean still is really good about just kind of celebrating the whole outdoor experience versus you know particularly with younger kids you take them out and make them fish for eight hours you're not going to get very far you know if you look at what's around and you know, play with bugs and that kind of thing. I think it gets you farther. And he was he was good with that. Um, I remember. I do remember one of the most intact memories I think I have is floating the Rivanna River, which I grew up on, um, a tributary to the James River, in a canoe, and we were fishing for smallmouth with spinning gear. Uh, I was probably four or five years old, and we were catching you know a bunch of kind of average size smallmouth. And I remember him you know, we Rivanna, just like the James, is loaded with long-nosed gar. And he, at some point, we floated over one, and I'd never seen one before, and he pointed it out, and he actually poked it with the paddle. And I just remember the whole canoe moving and the gar just sitting still. Like, he wasn't, he knew he was the king of the river, and he, you know, his kind had been there for thousands of years. We saw family of river otters. Um, we saw... I remember very clearly, I, it was probably me, it may have been him, but somebody got stuck on a log on the riverbank and we paddled over there to get the lure off and my face was about four inches from a log and I was kind of bending back into the canoe and the most rivers that I've been on in Central Virginia have these fishing spiders on them. They're about three inches around with their legs. And they love woody debris and there was one on that log. And when I was about a few inches from it, he just kind of popped up and started running all over the log and it freaked me out. And, and, uh, but I still remember that pretty well. And I don't remember the fish nearly as well as I remember the whole experience like that. Like I said.
0: Yeah. Very, very cool. So when did you start to really get into the dark side of fly fishing?
1: Fly fishing again, you know, There's some there's some pictures of me. I think in four or five years old, you know, at some of those trout ponds, with the fly rod being helped along. But I think I was really in the eight to ten year old range where I really picked up the fly rod. And my dad kind of gifted to me his old Okuma gray fiberglass fly rod with the cork was like half eaten out, kind of by mice or or what. But um, I would. I remember tying tying a fly. I, I saw a pattern for it in the back of a kind of a general freshwater fishing book I checked out of the library, uh, and I, I probably used. I think I used sewing thread and some stuff I pulled off a cat toy or something like that. And I remember jigging it off of a dock one summer when my friends were swimming at the lake and not catching anything, but just thinking how cool it was and. And that got me, you know. My dad started to get me into fly tying a little bit, and I did a lot of that, you know, in my room before I could really range very far from the house and fish. Um, but most of most of my fishing after, you know, I did quite a bit of spin fishing and, and you know throw a bait casting rod every once in a while. But most of my fishing through my, you know, like that eight year old range to well, probably once I hit 12, I was I was mostly fly fishing, um, and I mean, it was stuff near my house. I mean, before I could really, was trusted to ride my bike long distances and seek out those fisheries, you know, more than a couple hundred feet from my house. I remember dabbling some hare's ears with that old fly rod in the creek and catching I mean, shellcracker, they were probably born yesterday, like a half an inch long. It spawned, in, or been spawned in there in the spring, and, um, you know, I fished the Rivanna a lot. Once I I could ride my bike, and I was trusted to go fishing by myself for the full day, you know, a couple of summers, I remember being out there like four or five days a week fishing for smallmouth, and bluegill, and keeping a lot of bluegill, eating them pretty much on the river. Um And then it just kind of kept progressing. I remember when I had my learner's permit, I remember my dad made me drive us out to the mountains one day after work. And and I caught my first native brook trout on a, I want to say it was was an olive elk hair caddis that I had tied in my room one night. And, you know, those, those experiences just kept compounding and, And I just wanted to catch everything on a fly rod. It's just so cool to me after that.
0: So that's really cool. And, you know, I know you've talked a lot about your dad. He sounds like he's obviously been a mentor in your fishing life. Who are some other folks that have had an influence on your fishing?
1: Yeah. um, So my dad, for sure, I mean, definitely he was the one that started it all and got me out there. And still to this day, you know, I talk to him a lot and, and kind of, fester over the details of my fishing and, and all that kind of thing. Um, the other really big mentor of mine was, was Chuck Kraft, who was also a mentor of my dad. Um, but Chuck was a guy in central and Western Virginia for at least 30 years. I, I can't remember when he said he retired, but he's at least four years ago, he was still taking people every once in a while. And, on trips, even up into the brook trout streams. So he's been around quite a bit and and has really mentored a lot of people. Um, And is a, at least in Virginia and sort of the mid Atlantic, a very recognizable figure. Um, And Chuck is, I think if you talk to most people, people would describe him as a very thorough and observant and innovative kind of person. And that kind of that personality and that legacy just has really driven me, I guess, to to be that way. You know, Chuck has has helped me quite a bit and he's taught me a lot. And you know, I have a lot of mentors and, and the thing with that, you know, for me, I I really respect the people who have been there and done that. Um, people older than me and people who have um you know, been in the industry before me and kind of it paved the way for me. Um, and so my mentors, you know, speaking about Chuck and some other people I'll talk about, but uh, I just, I like to, I like to be a positive reflection of them. They're, they're what they've given me really drives me to be the best that I can be um, to perfect my craft and, and to be as thorough and, and knowledgeable as I can be. Um and Chuck kind of he, he, in a sort of roundabout way, taught me that um, some other guys, um Jim Richmond is a guy that i've I've fished with quite a bit, and still you know o- over the summer and and even into the shoulder seasons, you know, I fished with them a couple of weeks ago, in the summer, we fish probably two or three days a week if we're not busy because we do get busy in the summertime with smallmouth bass um, Jim's a guy a local guide here, um, a friend of Chuck, so kind of part of that circle as well. Um William Kirznak, uh Eastern Trophies fly fishing. He's a fly fishing guide up in the in northern Virginia on the Potomac and Shenandoah River. Um he's he's shown me a lot and, and we fish together every summer and in the fall some and, and he's helped me get into this whole fishing guide business and you know just like I said people that I consider to be mentors you know I'm pretty young in my career so I'm still I'm still learning from everybody that I can you know another guy would be Ellie Rhodes who's another smallmouth guide um that I actually grew up up the river from he's a guide in the Scottsville area in Virginia um on the James River and he uh I didn't really get to know Ellie until four or five years ago or so. Um, but he's just a guy that is always willing to help you out and and again he's taught me a lot and, and kind of just just knowing him, you know, makes me want to represent him well. Um, other guys, you know, like I said, guys like Joe Mahler who I met through, you know, Riley Rodcrafters are Family Rod Company, and then Brian Shoemaker, another guide up in Pennsylvania on the Susquehanna River. Those are guys that I've just been really fortunate to know and that have just supported me and and I think want to see me do well. And Again, that makes me just want to be the best that I can be.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty amazing list of people to kind of help you hone your craft. When did you decide that you wanted to be a fishing guide? (laughs) So I've actually I've got a business card
1: hanging up above my desk that I made in first grade when they they kinda gave us this assignment to make a business card for your your dream job. So I hang it next to my current business card um as a fly fishing guide in, in western Virginia. Um and that business card was um as a fishing guide on a lake in northern Vermont that my grandparents live on that I Grew up smallmouth fishing and and pike fishing and and yellow perch fishing on. And so it was back then, you know, before I guess I really had a concept of what a job was, you know, that I I just probably shortly after I realized that a fly fishing guide was a thing, um, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I definitely had some other interests, you know, as well. But uh, from a really early age, I think I knew that I wanted to, I wanted to take people fishing and then sort of in the middle of my high school career, you know, I started writing and writing to me taught me that, that uh, sharing the outdoors was something that I was passionate in, you know, sharing through writing, it, it gives me the opportunity to, as I say, kind of translate what I hear in the outdoors, you know, the, experiences that I have and the passion that I've found writing gives me the opportunity to share that with other people and writing also fits my personality um, which can be very analytical and kind of detail oriented and so I get to pursue all these kind of rabbit-holey kind of um, topics you know when you write an article about you know Fishing for pre-spawn smallmouth bass, you, you kind of have to do some research and and know the the why and the how and the when of it, and that that fits with guiding very well. And I actually, so after my after my high school years, I took a uh, gap semester before I went to college uh, at Emory Henry College down in southwestern Virginia, where I live now. And that was the first time that I was really given the opportunity to strip my life down kind of to what made me happy. And all I was really doing in that period was riding um, generally in, in sports bars and wherever I could find internet and fishing and, and and meeting people. I met a lot of people, people that for some reason ended up kind of befriending me while I was living out of my car in random places on the East coast. And, and so I, I learned in those couple of months that I really liked people and that adventure and kind of learning fisheries and, and writing were just, you know, what I wanted to do.
0: Well, that's really cool. So, you know, you're based in Southwestern Virginia. Uh, Why don't you share, Mm -hmm. share with my listeners, you know, the rivers that you fish and what you fish for, because, you know, Virginia, we're really lucky in that state. We have such a diverse you know, number of options.
1: Yeah, super diverse. Um it's not I always say I would probably burn out pretty quick if I lived, you know, in Montana and guides for trout for six months out of the year, pedal to the metal and then it was winter. You know, we have something to do um every day of the year and that can be frustrating sometimes because it's like what do you do in April when you know the crappie are, are spawning and the smallmouth are spawning, and you yeah, got great trout fishing and and all that. But I've I've narrowed it down to um, smallmouth bass, which really my first love is, you know from a fishing aspect. Um, Muskie, which we also have in a lot of our warm water rivers, and then wild trout. So in Southwest Virginia, we're really lucky to have this elevation advantage. And a lot of national forests that makes our trout streams um, able to carry naturally reproducing populations of trout. Rainbows and brown trout, that are not native, but they're descendants of hatchery fish from back in the 40s and 50s that have just been able to naturally reproduce and make a life in the creek because the habitat is so good. Um, and those creeks generally in the Mount Rogers National Recreation Area, which is an inset of the Jefferson National Forest. Um, streams like South Fork of the Holston, the headwater stream to the famous tailwater of the South Holston, uh, White Top Laurel Creek, and a few others. And then most of my smallmouth fishing happens on the New River, as well as my muskie fishing. But like you said, we're super diverse and and there are a number of smaller rivers that I don't really talk about. I hardly even tell my clients the name of them until we're there if they ask, um, but that have great populations of fish and uh, yeah that's that's mainly where i where I guide
0: well that's uh that's really cool, and you know. I always ask all of my guide guests to share what uh, they think the biggest misconception people have about the life of a fishing guide.
1: <laughs> well, I'll spare you the, the, I think the answer that I hear the most is that we fish all the time. Um, I think I do fish more than the average person for sure. You know, I don't fish more than my clients collectively. Um, just because, you know, there's, I, I can't fish. I can't, you know, if I do 100 trips in a year, it's hard to fish another 150. Um, But I try to, you know, um, if you're the kind of person that's going to have a hard time rowing the boat all day while your clients are catching fish, uh, it's not going to be a good job for you. But if you can kind of find enjoyment in the challenge of of you know, when you're fishing on your own, dissecting the fishery and understanding all the finer points of it for, you know, to be able to explain that to your clients and, and really show them an experience um, a Virginia outdoor fishing experience. And I think it's the best job in the world and that that's part of what I love about it. Um, But I think probably the biggest misconception is, is just, I don't think people really understand what goes into a single day of guided fishing. You know, you're some people kind of balk at the at the rate of a of a guide trip. A lot of most people don't, but some people do. You're really paying for super in-depth local knowledge. You're fish. You're paying for fishing knowledge, and you're paying for the experience of being rowed down the river and all the gear provided, you know, rods, reels, flies, lunch, et cetera. But for every day that that I'm on the river with clients, you know, there's several days of, you know, scouting, countless days of being on that specific water, learning it, studying the food that's in the river, um, designing flies to, to fit those food sources um, understanding the fish and their habits and their movements, um, understanding the river, tying flies, you know, the nights before during the winter so that you don't have to tie flies every night in the summertime. Um, packing lunch, keeping up the gear, you know, cleaning fly lines, tying leaders, like I said, tying flies, keeping up your car, the boat, all that kind of stuff. You know, when it's done well, it looks really easy. You know, a client shows up, they hop in the boat. You have a good day on the water, they go home. But, you know, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes that I think a lot of people just don't quite realize. And I would say that's that's one of the biggest things that people don't quite understand when they think about a fishing guide in their day-to-day.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm always trying to get people to understand what's involved. And, you know, you're lucky, right, because you don't work out of a shop where the shop's taking half of the guide fee.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly
0: uh you know because guys look at that number i was like well you know i try to help them particularly with guys that go out west do the math i was like they're like oh i'm like exactly (laughs) you know not to mention all the stuff you're talking about you know which is uh you know that river is a living breathing thing and it changes every day Mm -hmm. right
1: yeah well i mean for instance you know we've we've had a lot of rain this year i think everybody knows that it's not even worth saying anymore um, cause we've all been complaining about it for the last year at least, but you know, there's a section of river that I, uh, got some trout trips on where, uh, you know, a major section of the river, you know, a spot that we hit every day has changed dramatically like three or four times in the last six months, just cause we've had so many heavy, heavy rain events that it's, you know, carved out the bottom of the pool It's deposited sediment, it's moved trees, it's broken trees, it's done all that kind of thing. And the last thing I want to do is show up to the river with clients and, and, you know, one of my main spots is different, you know, now you can react to that kind of thing. But another example would be, you know, when a a friend of mine, we were out scouting a musky float this past November Mm -hmm. and we caught two fish over the course of a couple floats off of a particular section of bank. And, um, during one of those really heavy, you know, one of those really heavy rain events where the ground got real wet and it got real windy, a big sycamore fell, um, and landed kind of parallel to the bank and the, the hydrology of the river after that tree fell, cause that whole bank to kind of change character. And it, it just didn't fish the same after that. So being out there and, and being really, um, observant and, and knowing the river is, is huge. And that's, what's going to make people successful versus, you know, unsuccessful. And, and that's, like I said, a lot of what you pay for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The difference between fishing 10 to 20 days a year versus 150 days, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a big difference and and, you know it I noticed it in my own fishing you know when I get to fish you know fairly infrequently for a period of time the day on the river is just you kind of readjusting it's you kind of getting back into the mold that you were in your last trip when you fish five days in a row it's kind of a continual learning curve you know you're, you're not there's not really too much of remembering and kind of getting back into the swing of things you're thinking about what happened yesterday and how are we going to react to that and and that's some you know if you if you have the opportunity to fish for a week straight on a piece of water i would i would highly recommend it because the the number of details that you'll you'll notice um, and take into account that you just never even thought about before will, will really change your fishing, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's no substitute for time on the water, that's for sure. Uh, you know, and I know you, you know, we talked a little bit about your writing, but I mean, you're also known as a freelance writer and photographer. When did you really get that writing bug and the photography bug?
1: Yes, yes, sir. I, uh, Again, I was I was really lucky to uh, find some editors really early on to take a chance on me. In high school, I think I had just turned 15, it was in February, I won a high school essay contest that the Virginia Outdoor Writers Association puts on, and that same month I got my first paying magazine feature assignment from Chris McCotter, who's the editor of uh, Woods and Waters magazine, which is kind of a regional publication that circulates in Virginia, Maryland. You can pick it up in a couple of tackle shops and, and gun shops and that kind of thing. Um but he's also Chris is also a guide, a bass guide on uh, Lake Anna. And my dad and I fished with him when I was, was nineteen ninety nine, so I was three. Um another one of those things that I don't remember but I've seen pictures from. Um but I kept up with Chris and, and, you know, I had expressed interest in writing and so I got an assignment from him and then I got another one the next month and the next month. But I think it was after I got home from that um, high school essay contest thing, the uh, BOA meeting, I was kind of on this like writing high and emailed a bunch of editors, including the local paper, the daily progress. And, it was like two or three months before I heard back from the editor of the paper, but they actually offered to give me or they wanted to know if I'd write their outdoor column for them, their their weekly outdoor column, um, which circulates in several counties in central Virginia near my then home, you know, Flavanna, Buckingham, Nelson, Madison, Green, Almiral counties, that kind of area. And I I said I'd do it, and I'm still doing it. So that was, I think, seven years, eight years ago, and I was 15, and, and I, I kind of built it up fairly quickly, and I'm kind of where I want to be now. Um, but yeah, I got I got really really lucky early on.
0: That's really cool. Who are some of the people that have influenced your writing and your photography?
1: Um, so the main guy. That I that I cite a lot, kind of a weird, weird connection. But his name is Bob Gooch, and Bob was a pretty re- well renowned outdoor columnist and freelance writer in Central Virginia. He actually lived a few doors down from my childhood home in Troy, Virginia. But he you know he had a syndicated column, um, Virginia Out Outdoors. I believe it was called, um, and he actually passed away before I really got to know him, but he came over for dinner, you know, while I was a kid and, and hunted with my dad a lot, and and again, just, just knowledge of his legacy, you know, and, and in my mind, I was kind of filling part of the void that he left when he passed away and stopped writing, because I was literally from the same street and was writing about the same places and the same kinds of things, you know, the, the central Virginia outdoor experience, um, as he was. So, so just knowing him kind of fueled me to be the best that I could be at that. Um, and ironically also it was Bob Gooch that gave Chris McCotter his first paying writing gig. Um, and like I said, Chris was the one who gave me my first. So, um, it really is you know both in the guiding thing and the writing thing there's a there's a whole community that supports me as an individual um, and I'm very understanding of that and very thankful for that
0: that's uh that's really neat how do you pick your topics
1: in terms of in terms of writing um my outdoor column is i'm really lucky to they just let me do what I want to you know it's it's a weekly thing and and I, I generally don't even have to pitch them an idea. I just kind of submit it on my deadline day. And I try to stay pretty pretty consistent with the seasons, you know, write about shed antler hunting in the early spring and squirrel hunting in the fall and smallmouth fishing in the summer. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily have to know anything about those subjects. It's the thing as a writer, you know, you, you really need to strive to be a journalist, not not just writing about what you know and trying to be the source of the knowledge. You know, I interview a lot of people. Um, if I don't necessarily, if if I don't, if I'm not knowledgeable on a subject, you know, like spring turkey hunting, I, I didn't grow up doing that. and I don't know much about it. I'll find a local expert, you know, within my readership who does do it and I'll interview them and, and cite them in the article, and and that just brings the whole circle closer, um, which I I really love. I love having that that community with the magazine features. Um, my subjects are generally things that I'm passionate about. Um, I write a lot of stories about smallmouth fishing, a lot of um squirrel hunting. I I love the squirrel hunt. It's something that that I'll talk about a lot. But I love the squirrel hunt. It's what I grew up doing. Um, after school in the fall. Um, and some, you know, some things are, are just uh, maybe a certain region or a fisheries caught my, not, caught my interest and I'll pitch something to a magazine that'll give me a reason to go there. You know, I'll be honest about that. I've been to a lot of really cool places and most of it's been on work, you know, kind of unofficially, you know, on my own as a freelance writer, but I'll go and I'll spend my own money doing it and I'll come back and I'll write a story and, and it, it kind of gives me a reason to go there. Um, and the the others are just related to my day-to-day experiences. You know, I, I have some outlets that I can sell some short, you know, five to 800 word stories to. And, and those would just be, you know, stories about a particular day on the water or, particular pattern you know fishing pattern not a fly pattern but you know a fishing pattern that I've I've come to understand you know high water trout fishing is one that I've done a lot that kind of thing but you know working for your stuff there is a bit of a bit of flexibility the editor always has to say yeah go ahead but generally I can pick pick what I want to write about
0: well, that's awesome, and I know you mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview the uh, the family business, Riley Crafters, mm-hmm. and I know it's a, a pretty young company, uh, and I know you do things with them. What do you do for Riley Crafters?
1: Yeah, so obviously I've kind of been pretty tight with the company. I've been around since its inception. Um, I do a lot of product testing, if you will, you know, taking rods that were kind of developing out and fishing them and and help with kind of conceptualizing the ideas behind rods and tapers and that kind of thing talking about business and and most of that really transpires is drawn out conversations with my dad in the kitchen or on the road to the river or something like that but um, we also have the guide program um, which i'm a part of you know we have some other guys around you know, like I mentioned, Ellie Rhodes and Brian Shoemaker is, is guys that I respect quite a bit and have learned from. They're both in the program, and it's kind of unique within the industry, I think, um, because as a guide in the Riley Rodcrafters Guide Program, you know, you, you have the rods on the boat, you know. So, for instance, I carry a lot of the Chuck Craft Signature Series Seven and eight weights um, is smallmouth rods, and you know my clients will fish them uh, during the day you know unless they want to bring their own rods, which of course is fine by me, but they'll fish them during the day and and so they get a, a real good opportunity to field test the rods and then at the end of the day you know if, if they I, I generally give them to to my clients um, whether they express interest or not in the moment, but, you know, we have the opportunity to provide uh discount cards to our clients. So if they like a rod, they can go home and hop online and, and buy a rod at discount, which is nice for them um, because they get an incentive to, or they get some money off of a rod. It's also an incentive for them to, to, you know, like I said, buy a rod. It's an incentive for the guides in the program to sell the rods, you know, while they're fishing them. Um, never, never aggressively, but, but, uh, gives us the opportunity to kind of, um, push them in that direction. And, you know, it, it just benefits everybody around. So I think that's kind of a, a unique thing. I also do some, uh, you know, I write some blog posts and do some social media management and that kind of thing but um, that's that's fairly minimal. All of us pretty much in the guide program contribute to that because we 're always getting pictures on the river and and kind of helping to promote the brand in that way
0: very cool and if we back up just a little bit, I think the what the company's <laughs> what two or three years old, tell us a little bit yeah. about how it got started.
1: Yeah, so my dad uh, was working in, in the corporate world um, and got out of it and just decided he was looking for a new project. And we kind of at the time were kind of frustrated by the super fast, super light rod, fly rod movement. And we're trying to get back to kind of the rods that. That I mean, him in particular, I don't really have the historical perspective, but that he was used to fishing, you know, the somewhat slower, more relaxed, classic kind of feeling fly rod, um, instead of making fly fishing a sprint, you know, down the river. Um, and, and so we just started, we started designing rods with, with some fairly notable people and, the product is what we have now. You know, we have several different models on the market and most of them are a little different than, you know, what you see kind of dominating the market.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Cause I guess you've got the Chuck craft, right? I think you've got yeah. Stu apt, uh, Debbie Hanson. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. And, and I know it was interesting cause I was looking on your website and it really is, you know, to build rides with a little bit of romance and soul and not kind of get caught up in that, you know, we got to show every year, we got to make something new, uh, and making, mm-hmm. making something new just to make new, which I thought was really interesting.
1: Yeah. I remember having that conversation, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to fall into that, that trap, you know, of, of just coming out with a new ride every year to have a new ride to push, you know, we, We really focus on making quality fishing rods, and and I want to kind of emphasize fishing. You know, we're not talking about rods that you can bomb 100-foot casts in the parking lot with. Um, We don't use commercially available blanks. We work with a blank maker. We roll our own tapers that fit the specifications of the people that we're working with to design these rods. So, you know, like you said, Chuck Crafts, Stu App, uh Joe Mahler, uh casting instructor down in Fort Myers, Florida, is another one. Uh Debbie Hanson. And sort of the unintended result of building rods to the specifications of those kinds of people is, you know, they, they know how a rod should and needs to perform to most effectively and efficiently fish. And that makes most of our rods sort of a moderate action, meaning that they're easy and pleasurable to fish with. You can feel the rod load into the middle of the rod, which allows for more relaxing casting stroke. It provides some shock absorption for casting big flies and fighting big fish. So like I had some guys in the boat the other day, it was Sunday. I can't remember the days very well, but um, they, they brought their own rods and they, they kind of got tired after a couple hours and they're saying their elbows hurt and, which is easy to do casting big musky flies, but you know we I switched them out to the one the rods that I carry, which uh, at this particular moment are StuApp eleven weights, and they have a lot more flex to them uh, than the rods they were carrying, and I truly believe that that makes casting bigger flies easier because your elbow and your wrist is no longer the shock absorber, you know the rod tip is, and that's the way it should be. Um, But that moderate action also, um, it still has enough backbone to uh, make a hard hook set into a fish like a smallmouth bass that you sometimes have to make a pretty hard hook set into, um, like muskie, that have fairly hard mouth as well. Um, And it still has enough backbone to put pressure on a big fish like that. And again, the, the tip, being more flexible, you know, flexing into the midsection has enough of a shock absorber to, you know, you hear the term tip protection a lot, but what that really means is there's enough of a spring in your rod tip to, to really absorb head shakes and, and quick movements by the fish. So you can lean on a big fish and, you know, your rod is really working for you. It's, it's helping you fight that fish.
0: Yeah. There's nothing worse than being out on the water in about two or three o'clock in the afternoon, kind of hitting the wall because you've kind of worn yourself out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Joe Mahler, you know, one of the guys, you know, one of our signature series creators, if you will, you know, he, he talks about trying to make casting effortless. And if you watch him, it, it he really has. Um, and that's translates into his rod design, um, and the rest of our rod designs, you know, Like I said, the people who've designed these rods, the most part are guides or casting instructors. And most of their clients are are either fairly new to fly fishing um, or they don't get to fly fish that often. And so having a rod that takes a lot of the the work out of it is really nice. Um, and, And being able to feel the rod load, you know, that moderate action, it allows somebody who doesn't get to do it all the time that may need to refresh their their casting skills or somebody who's learning, it gives them the ability to hop in the boat and get fairly proficient fairly quickly.
0: Yeah, getting that feedback from the rod is so important. And, you know, I think people, particularly when they start out, and some of us still forget, you know, you know, the rod is really an incredibly efficient tool. You don't really need to overpower it. It'll do a lot of yeah. things with not a lot of umph. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I, I talk about a lot you know that like like i said I, I do some guiding for musky and i also do some trips for trout and a lot of our trout streams are fairly tight um some of them have some pretty big fish in them um i had a guy last week catch a 27 inch brown trout if that tells you anything and in a creek it's not very big with a lot of overhanging trees and and all that kind of thing so i talk about having sort of an escape plan you know a fight plan before you even hook that fish when you move into a new spot and a lot of that comes down to knowing how to use the different parts of the rod to your advantage and that's where that moderate action rod also becomes a very versatile tool because it has a very effective spring in the upper half of the rod and the tip but it also has a strong sort of lower in butt section that allows you to move fish and put pressure on fish. So, you know, that the moderate action, like I said, is very versatile as well.
0: Well, that's great. I really appreciate you sharing that with us tonight. And, you know, you, you'd mentioned that you've got a regular weekly column in the Daily Progress. Mm-hmm. Um, what, yeah. day, what day of the week does that normally come out?
1: Uh, it typically, it's supposed to come out on a Wednesday. Sometimes they jump the gun and, and kick it out on a Tuesday. but it's a it's a subscription based newspaper so a lot of people a lot of people i think they they kind of are just automatically so i don't know if they know they're subscribing or not but they move into a house and they they get the the newspaper but um it generally comes out on a wednesday and and i can't tell you the circulation but most people in those counties that i mentioned do get it
0: yeah, I, no. I remember when I was in law school in Charlottesville. We, I, I got the Daily Progress. I remember it well. Yeah, um, yeah. What um, you got any upcoming articles you want to share?
1: Um, shoot, I don't even know what I'm writing about next week. To be honest, I've been I've been working so hard. Otherwise, I haven't gotten to stop and think about it. Um, I am working a, a cool kind of person or. Um, movement, I guess, if you will, that I've been writing about recently for American Angler is a guy named Matt Hart who is uh owns and runs the Forged Fly, which is a he's an artist and he does some metal sculpting of flies. So he'll he'll build everything from like I'm not sure how he would term it, but like a tabletop kind of like a foot tall fly, you know, like a Royal Coachman or a Adams or something like that. So like he made a claw dad for Chuck that's like two and a half feet long and he's made a deceiver that's, you know, a couple of feet long. Um and so I've been I've been working on a piece about kind of profiling him. Um, but I think that's my most recent. Yeah. I've kind of been slacking off a little bit here lately with uh Things have been getting pretty busy on the water here
0: lately. Totally get it. Yeah, Matt's super talented. I guess I met him last year at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. Yeah. Uh, and Yeah, actually, he was
1: not there this past year, but he usually goes.
0: Yeah, and I I have one of his pieces sitting on my desk. He's super creative. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about speaking engagements? I suspect you're probably out of the speaking game since fishing season's kind of yeah.
1: fine. Yeah, so I, I typically do the South River Fly Fishing Expo, which is an awesome show. Yeah. Um, I believe this year it's the, see, I look at my calendar here real quick. I think it's the, the last week in April, the 26th and the 27th, I believe. Um, I hope I'm not wrong about that, but, um, I usually do that one, but yes, show season is pretty much behind me at this point. I just got kind of booked a lot of trips for April and just got busy and, and kind of had to cut that one, but it's a, it's a great show. And, and I'll probably be there the year after, um, the next thing I really have on the calendar, I think is I'm doing a talk with the fly fishers of Virginia and Richmond on July 18th. And that'll just be about fishing in Southwest Virginia, you know, smallmouth trout and muskie included. Um, but other than that, I'm pretty much done for the year.
0: Yeah all on the water. Well, where can folks find out more about your guide service and Riley rods?
1: Yeah. So my website is www.mattreilyflyfishing.com. That's my business name. Pretty straightforward. Um, It's M-A-T-T-R-E-I-L-L-Y flyfishing.com. And then my social media accounts are linked on there, but they're all under Matt Riley fly fishing as well, Facebook and Instagram. And then, uh, Riley Rodcrafters website is uh, RileyRods.com, R E I L L Y R O D S.com. And uh, I believe the social media links for the Rod Company are linked on the website as well. Um, but you can find uh, those by searching Riley Rodcrafters as well.
0: And what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you, Matt?
1: Uh, definitely the website. Um, I. You know, I love phone calls because I can talk to somebody real quick and really figure out, um, you know, what I can do for them. Um, but email is, to be honest, usually the best way to get in contact with me because not always in cell service and and I've been relatively busy lately, and I think I'm still pretty behind on my phone calls.
0: Yeah, no, a- absolutely. It's like, particularly with the days get longer. You know, you you fish later, and it's just harder to get people on the phone. Absolutely. Yeah, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening. Uh, Folks, uh, thanks for listening tonight. I would ask you to do me a favor. If you like the podcast, please give us a review in iTunes, and it would really help us out with our advertisers if you would subscribe to us in the podcatcher of your choice. Thanks again, Matt. Tight lines, everybody.
1: Thank you, Marvin.